Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that you're speaking to each of us just those things you want us to hear. Help us not take burdens meant for others and help us not to turn away a deaf ear to things you want for us specifically. We give you ourselves again in this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll go, uh, I don't want to say quickly, I've got, I've got a lot to share. When I do my teachings, you know, the pages d- tell me how long I'm going to speak. I've got eight pages. That's, that's my record. I've never had more than eight pages. I'm reading some of it so it's text, but we'll, we'll go through as briskly as I can, but I don't want to, uh, to cheat you either, but I just say hang in there and uh, stay focused as much as you can. If you've eaten at our house, at our dining room table before, and my wife's been present, you've probably shared with us some of those laughs that come from what my wife thinks she heard. And I asked my daughters for some of these, you know, all the things that we laugh at routinely, we don't write down, so we forget them over time. The one I do remember is about the men having the mastectomies, and she says, what, he's having a mastectomy? No, honey, that's not what we said. It's the difference between what you said and, and what she heard, and they're not quite the same. There's this disjunct between what was said, the intention of what was said, and what was heard. And, and you know, often in life, you and I, we develop expectations based on what we think is coming. We think somebody said something. We think God's made us a certain kind of promise, and so we develop an expectation because of that, and time rolls along, and, and the expectation doesn't get fulfilled the way we thought. And you know, Probably oftentimes it's because we didn't get it right the first time. We didn't understand what our expectation should be the first time. <clears throat> it is Palm Sunday, and we're actually going two tracks here, which is why this might be just a little lengthy. We're honoring Palm Sunday as much as I can while we then segue into John 19 to cover the crucifixion passage, and we're joining them in the middle, and I hope it all makes sense. But it is Palm Sunday. And you know, as a Jew, if you lived when Jesus that day, a couple thousand years ago, when he rode into Jerusalem, and they're crying out, Hosanna, they think they're welcoming a military deliverer, a military savior. And we look back and we say, you know, their expectations were misguided. They didn't understand what God was doing, but, but there were some real legitimate reasons for their expectations. And you know, it wasn't all that long before Jesus rode in on the donkey in about 165 B.C., the Maccabee boys, the Maccabee family had risen up against the Syrians and they had come in and they'd occupied Israel. Beyond that, Antiochus had desecrated the Jewish temple the worst way he knew how. He went into the Holy of Holies. He offered pigs there on the altar and he wouldn't let the Jews worship. In fact, it was because of his prohibition against practicing their religion that the Maccabee family rose up. And under the key son, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, Judas raised guerrilla armies. And they kicked the Syrians out of Israel. And Judas Maccabee and his brothers and their descendants started a golden age for Israel. This is during the silent years, so it's not part of the biblical record. Although if you read First and Second Maccabees, you can pretty much get the gist of the story. But there was a short golden period for Israel again from about 165 B.C. to about 63 B.C. when Rome came back in. So if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, it wasn't all that long ago that you remembered God sent us a deliverer, Judas the Hammer. 
And Judas the hammer and this small band of guerrilla warriors from Israel kicked out the Syrians. And under the Maccabees, Israel's borders spread back out to the size they were in the time of David and Solomon. And they restored the temple. And if you know anything about the Jewish Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, it commemorates the restoration of the temple under the Maccabees. So the Jews in Jesus' day, they could think back not just to biblical prophecies from the Old Testament. They could think back to the lives of their grandparents or so when God had sent in a military leader, a family, and one key individual, and they had kicked out the foreign armies and they had restored the nation of Israel back to glory, back to their land, restored the temple and the practice of their religion. So you can understand, for the Jews crying out when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, there was an expectation, and there were some reasons for that. Beyond that, in Jesus' time, you remember that just before Palm Sunday, Jesus has raised a dead man back to life from the village just east of Jerusalem in Bethany. So when he comes in on that donkey on Palm Sunday, their expectations are high. It's for a military leader to come in. Now, Jesus is on a donkey, and in our minds, that's kind of a peasant's beast. The truth is, though, kings rode horses in war. They rode donkeys in times of peace. So for Jesus to come in on a donkey, this wasn't a bad thing. This was still something that kings did. So their expectation is Jesus must be that next hammer, that next Judas, that next military leader that's going to save and deliver us. We're going to skip around a little bit in passages, but the place we'll key in is John 12, and then we'll go from there to John 19. John 12, starting at verse 12, the Palm Sunday text, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, and these are the crowds who are coming in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. They've started here in the front end of the week. Passover gets celebrated on Thursday. This is Sunday. They've, they've started entering Jerusalem, so the city is starting to fill up. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees, they went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, just like our song, which means in Hebrew, God save or God save us. Hosanna, God save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is from Psalm 118, verse 26. Jesus, finding the young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's from Zechariah 9.9. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. In other words, he's coming into a glorious reception already and the people who witnessed the resurrection are telling people this is what he's just done. For this reason also the people went and met him because they'd heard that he'd performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're doing no good. Look, the world has gone after him. In other words, our desire to disrail this guy from prominence is going nowhere because everybody's going out to him. They're calling him out as our next king. Now, I want to look briefly at the passages that are quoted here in John 12. If you say, you know, Jewish expectation, on one hand, historically, not all that long before the Maccabees had come in, God had restored the nation, but also look at the passages that they're quoting. I'm just going to mention this briefly. In verse 13, Psalm 118 is quoted. Now, if you're a Jew and you're, you know Psalm 118, 
There's reasons to think this is messianic, and Jesus must be bringing in a military conquest. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 6. O Lord, do save, that's Hosanna, O Lord, Hosanna, save, we beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they've quoted. That's what they've sung out. But also in Psalm 118, verse 5, 6, and 7, says this, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. You know, biblically, Old Testament, the, the language of Psalm, set me in a large place, raised me up out of trouble, and put me in a place of safety and security. The Lord is for me, I won't fear. What can man do to me? What can Romans do to me? What can Syrians do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me, therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. I'm going to look with satisfaction on those low-down, dirty, Gentile Romans in the land of promise. You can see that when they quote Psalm 118, they're thinking deliverance for good reason, because that's what the psalm talks about. Zechariah 9.9, quoted in verse 15, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king comes to you. He is just, he has salvation, he's lowly, and riding upon an ass, even a colt, the foal of an ass. Look at the next verse in Zechariah 9.10. If you care to, I'll read it. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that is, northern Israel. The chariot is the implement of war. It's like our modern tanks, personnel carriers. And the horse from Jerusalem down in the south in Judah. The battle bow shall be cut off. He, the one who comes in on that donkey, shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the from the Dead Sea and the Jordan to the Mediterranean, and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth, to Egypt. This is a promise that their Messiah would come in and would restore the nation to the boundaries promised to Abraham. The guy who comes in on the donkey, Zechariah says, brings peace to the whole area. He gets rid of all warfare in Israel. You're delivered from all your enemies. So when we think of those Palm Sunday Jews and the passages they're thinking of, there's reason for them to have an expectation that God is going to bring in this military deliverer and save them from the Romans. They're looking for their Messiah King, somebody like David or Judas the Hammer, Maccabee, to come in and bring that kind of deliverance. Now, our cross point here, the place where Hosanna, Palm Sunday, and Good Friday meet can be summarized in the terms Hosanna and Crucify. Hosanna on Palm Sunday and, of course, Crucify on Good Friday. In the first half of John 19, verses 1 through 16, we already saw that the Jewish leaders, out of envy, want to get rid of Jesus. And so they've had him arrested. They've tried him illegally. They've delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate makes a half-hearted effort to liberate Jesus, to free him, because he knows he's innocent. He says repeatedly, he's done nothing guilty. And of course, one of the ways he goes about that is to offer the Jews the choice on this holiday of freeing either Barabbas, the thief and the murderer, or Jesus, the one who raised a man from the dead. And of course, the Jews say, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Pilate asks them, what should I do with Jesus, with your king? And they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You know, those Hosanna shouts on Palm Sunday turn into crucify on Good Friday. 
It's ironic, of course, that the crucify, crucify will be the means by which God actually answers the cry for Hosanna. Hosanna means God save us. And the salvation they're thinking of is military and it's immediate. And that's not actually the way God's going to bring in deliverance at this point. But the crucify, crucify is the means of deliverance. It's just a different kind of deliverance than they were thinking of. The salvation God was providing was different than, and it was greater than, the deliverance they were calling out for on Palm Sunday. They had an expectation Jesus didn't meet. And so they said, crucify him. And it was that very crucifixion that God the Father was using to bring about the deliverance they were calling for. A little different than they thought. We're going to move from Hosanna on Palm Sunday to crucify on Good Friday in John 19. We'll start at verse 17. We're just going to read through the passage and then we'll go from there. Jesus has been condemned. They took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. John doesn't make a lot of it. He just says they crucified him. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. This is truth coming from an unexpected source here again. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Basically, if you could read, you could read one of these languages and everyone could read the signature above him, the claim or the charge against him. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, four soldiers there, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. From Psalm 22, verse 18. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, unnamed, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four soldiers, four friends, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. And even nailed to the cross, Jesus as the eldest son of his family is making provision for his mother. He's the one in the responsible position. It's interesting when he commends her, her care to the future, it's to none of his half-siblings who didn't believe in him. It's to someone whom he knew who believed in him who he could trust. It's to John. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. This would seem to fulfill Psalm 69, verse 21. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And of course, for Jesus, it is finished doesn't just mean I'm giving up my life, my life is over. It means God's will for my life, 
here has been fully accomplished. His death fully accomplished everything God meant to accomplish during his lifetime. Verse 31, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, Friday, preparing for Saturday their Sabbath at sundown, would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. That Sabbath was a high day. Sabbaths were special, of course, but it was especially special since it was the Sabbath of the Feast of Passover. Ask Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. By the way, there's been a skeleton unearthed in the area of Jerusalem of a crucified man. And there's a Roman spike driven through his heel bones. The spike was part of his skeleton. And both his shins were smashed and broken. And the reason this would hasten their death, you remember we've talked about crucifixion, but when you're suspended by the weight of your arms, it's difficult to breathe. When they smash your legs, and they did it with a large iron mallet, you can't push up off those broken legs anymore to breathe. So you suffocate in relatively short order after this is done. And the skeletons, both tibias, fibulas, were broken, were crushed on the skeleton. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And verse 35 is interesting. We've had a third-party account, as it were, of the story, just telling us the story all the way along. And now it's as if John looks up from his manuscript telling you his story, and he looks you in the eye, the reader, the person hearing his testimony, and he says, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John looks up from his story and he says, I am a witness and I'm telling you so you can believe, which is the theme, of course, of his whole gospel. These things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken, from Psalm 34, 20. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced, from Zechariah 12, 10. And just to clarify, John includes all these Old Testament texts. Why? because he wants us to know that what's happened to Jesus isn't an accident. He's not a victim. These things haven't happened to him against his will, as it were. John's showing us all these Old Testament texts, and he says, Jesus, knowing that everything else is fulfilled, says, I thirst, so that they'll put that wine up there. He doesn't control the soldiers, but they do what Psalm 69 said would be done. They give him vinegar to drink. All these texts are meant for us to understand Jesus is not a victim. This is not happen chance. This is going according exactly the way God the Father predetermined it would, which is what the early church understood in the opening chapter of Acts, the same thing. Jesus, this wasn't out of control. God's plan and God's will weren't overturned. The Jews' rejection of Jesus and the Roman crucifixion of Jesus didn't stop God's plan. It was all part of what God had determined would happen to bring about the answer to the cries of Hosanna. This is all part of God's plan. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, and sorry, I think my last interruption here. 
This says, and, and we kind of recoil maybe slightly, Joseph was a disciple secretly because he feared man. And we say, man, what a loser. But you know what? When there was nothing to be gained, when Jesus is dead, and there's no reason to associate with him, Joseph and Nicodemus basically put themselves on the line to honor Christ in his death by burying him. He's dead now, and their fellows have seen that he was put to death. There's nothing for them to gain. There's everything to lose. But it's as if his death jarred them out of their complacency. It wasn't too late. They honored Christ after his death. They got over their fears, maybe not as soon as we would like, but, but they did in the end when there was nothing to gain. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Crucify, crucify, and this is where it ends. This sounds a little bit like the end of Genesis. They laid Joseph in a tomb, in a casket. They laid Jesus in a tomb. It sounds like it's over. Now, we looked at those passages that they were thinking on Palm Sunday, Psalm 118 and Zechariah before, and now I want to look at some other passages, parts of those same passages, Psalm 118 and Zechariah. Because you know it's funny? We understand their expectation historically, and we understand their expectation because of the text they're calling out. But you know what? They missed some other key components of those same texts. And maybe if they'd had those in mind as well, maybe their expectations would have been just a little different. Psalm 118, besides referring to the one who's blessed coming in God's name, the one who's going to help them look down on their enemies. You know what else Psalm 118 said? Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief corner. That's in the same psalm. Or Psalm 118, verse 27, The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus was the stone the builders rejected. And Peter says so in Acts 4.11 to the Jewish people who'd rejected him, the builders. Jesus, during the feast of Passover, he was the festival sacrifice, bound not to an altar but to a cross for us. That's in Psalm 118, the same place they're saying, Hosanna has these same verses. They didn't see them. They didn't get it. Out of Zechariah, Besides speaking of a king on a donkey who would restore the nation to greatness, Zechariah also says these things, Zechariah 13, 1. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And you know when that soldier pierced Jesus' side, what does it tell us? Blood and water like a fountain flowed out. The fountain for sin and impurity was Jesus on the cross as his blood flows out. Zechariah 13, 6. One will say to him, to the Messiah, What are these wounds between your arms? And he'll say, Well, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friend. Zechariah, the same place, said Messiah is going to be wounded by his friends. And then last, Zechariah 13, 7. 
which Jesus quoted the night he was betrayed. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate or my equal, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Jesus said this is what's happening that night that he was arrested. Jesus the shepherd was being struck. The Jewish expectation, you can understand fully on one hand, historically and from the passage, but on the flip side, you say, if they'd seen the rest of what was said, cleared their ears. God, what'd you say? They might have had a different expectation. Probably not unlike us today. The Jews in Jesus' day didn't realize, and I'd argue we tend to not realize either, that the cost, one, the cost of our deliverance is far more costly than anticipated or expected. Now just think, if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, your thought of the cost of Hosanna, of deliverance, is a a war. And it'll be short. Because your good guy, the Messiah, he'll come in, he'll raise that army like Judas Maccabee. He'll kick those Romans out. And gosh, he'll usher in this time of peace and, and life will be good. Life will be good again. They didn't realize the real cost of deliverance was the cost of God's life himself through his son. And it was 2,000 years earlier, geographically in almost the same spot, in which God the Father told Abraham, take your son, your only son, march him up with a stack of wood on his back up to Mount Zion and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. And God's son marches up that same geography with a cross on his back and is offered by the Father, offers the Son for the sins of the world. The Jewish expectation of the cost of deliverance was was minor. It was paltry. They didn't understand what the deliverance, what Hosanna would really cost. It cost God his Son. It wasn't a short war. It wasn't a little loss of life and then national glory. It was God himself on the cross. That was the cost of their deliverance. Jewish expectations and our own also related to what God's deliverance included and looks like, it fell short. It fell real short. Their outlook was too low. Their expectations weren't high. It wasn't that they were too high, they were too low. So think of this. The Jews hoped for a lifetime of maybe a hundred years in the land of promise with a chicken in every pot That would be Hosanna. That would be salvation. God was laying the foundation for an eternal kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. They're thinking maybe a hundred years, life will be good in this land. God's saying eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. That's Hosanna. Jewish hopes were to see victory over Rome. That's what they were thinking. Kick out the bad guys. Give us our land back, our little corner of the earth, and we're good. God's out to conquer sin Satan, and death in answering Hosanna. Jewish hopes were to be counted the children of Abraham, you know, the father of faith. Count me a child of Abraham. God was drawing up adoption papers in the blood of his son to make people from every tribe, race, tongue, kindred, children of God. Not children of Abraham, children of God, which is where John's gospel started. Came to his own, they didn't receive him. If you received him, what? He gives you the right, the power to become children of God. 
I'm convinced that we tend to be like the Jews on Palm Sunday, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, with expectations that are way too low and absolutely no concept of the price of deliverance. That we're living shallow lives with shallow prayers because we don't know the cost of salvation and we don't know the height to which God wants to raise us in deliverance. I think our prayers tend to be when we cry Hosanna like the Jews, give us peace, give it to us now. 100 years, chicken in every pot right here, we're good to go. And you know, frankly, I think for most Christians, we're like, God, give me success, bigger house, nicer job, a little more esteem. I'm having, a, I'm having children, good looking sons, Lord, that'd be nice. Attractive daughters, yeah, I'll take that. Newer car, shinier appliances, and on and on and on. And I think what we really sound like is the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, and they stand before Christ and they say, we, we've got it pretty good because we're rich. We've got all this good stuff. We don't need anything, Lord. And he says, you don't have anything of real worth. You're really wretched, blind, naked, and miserable. You just don't know it because you got all this stuff, but you don't have me. You remember that's the church? He's outside. He's not with them. He's outside knocking on the door saying, by the way, if you open up, I'd be glad to come in. This is his church. I think it's our church today. I don't just say our large. I think it's us. I think it's us in this room. I think it's the church primarily in the West. I was talking to someone recently. You know the Christians in China? By the way, you know, we support Christians in China through Voice of the Martyrs and we get their literature. You know, a couple things that they're thinking and recently and missionaries are talking about and they're telling people from the West, two things. They say, we believe God has helped the church in China suffer because he wants us to take the gospel to the Muslim world. Between China and Jerusalem is the goal of the persecuted church in China to take the gospel. They think their suffering has prepared them to suffer in the Muslim world, martyrdom, and death, and that that's what God has prepared them for, and that's what they're thinking about. That's a little different than Lord saying, Hosanna, nicer car, more prestige, new appliance. You know what the other thing they do regularly? They pray for the church in the West. You know, we think of them as the oppressed people. They think we're oppressed because we're drowning in our material possessions. And we say, but we're okay, Lord, because we got our stuff. The church in China that doesn't have the stuff, they've got the life. They've got Christ. And they pray for the church in the West that we lose our stuff to gain Christ. So the Jews on Palm Sunday, they're crying out Hosanna, and they think, hey, this is the right expectation, historically accurate, based on the right promises. And God says, you just don't understand. You think you heard me. But you didn't, because the cost is far more costly than you have any concept of. And my goals for you are far higher than anything you've had in mind. Far higher. Palm Sunday Hosanna turns into crucify Good Friday. And the secret is it's crucify. That's the answer. That's the cost. And that's the opening, of course. That's the beginning of all God's great deliverance for the future. Now, contrast our prayers. I'm winding down. Contrast our prayers 
with the model of prayer, Jesus told his disciples, when you want to talk to God and you want a model to think about, think of this, O Father in heaven. When these guys on Palm Sunday, they're crying out, Hosanna, where do you think their gaze is? Right here. When Jesus says, when you want to approach God, the Father in prayer, where do you start? Up here. Totally 180 degrees difference. I'm not looking at myself. When I start to pray to God, I'm not thinking about myself at all. God in heaven. You're the one who occupies heaven. You're glorious and you're majestic and you're separate from us. God, our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you're holy. You are holy. Help us declare your holiness. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What's Jesus doing? He's not bringing in their kingdom. He's bringing in God's kingdom. You know what you and I are doing most of the time? We're asking God to give us our own kingdoms. Give us a kingdom and make me king. Give me what I want. Is there any problem with this? Jesus says when you pray, it's to God in heaven. He's holy. And your prayer starts out, God, you bring in your kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, in heaven, how fast do you think God's will is carried out right now? How much opposition is there to God's will in heaven? None. God, bring your will, your kingdom from heaven down to earth. And then and only then does Jesus say, and by the way, give us this day our daily bread. Hosanna, Lord. There's a few things we need. You know, I'm not against anything. I love the good stuff, I think, probably as much as anybody. I love good food. Ruth's stuff yesterday, totally great and awesome. The food, Ruth Vincent Powell catered yesterday. Great. I love good food, too much, no doubt. I love newer cars. I love bigger houses. <laughs> I love this stuff as much as anybody, I'm sure. This is the deal, though. Where's the stuff in relation to Christ? You know, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, uh, God's delighted to give you all the good stuff to enjoy. Stuff's not inherently evil. There's nothing wrong with stuff. It's stuff. And it's sanctified through prayer. You want to enjoy it? Great. Enjoy the good things God's given you but enjoy God first. God's first. Stuff doesn't compare to God. Hosanna for us shouldn't mean newer cars. It shouldn't mean comfort. It should mean God bring your kingdom in. Your will be done here and now on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Hosanna is supposed to mean. Not my will. Your will be done. That's Good Friday praying. God the Father, take the cup away. Give me a little bit more comfort, Father. Don't make me go through the pain. But in the end, Father, not my will. Your will be done. Bring in your kingdom. Hosanna turns into crucify, and it's crucify that brings in God's kingdom. This Palm Sunday, as we're recalling the crucifixion, thank God that he wasn't content to cater to our little pathetic prayers or Jewish expectations or hopes for a little piece of the pie in their time for a little lifetime anyway. That he had a plan of redemption and restoration through the death and resurrection of his son and the elevation to eternal glory of Hosanna crying people 
like you and me. You know, they said back then in Psalms, and it was marvelous in our eyes. What God does, it's marvelous in our eyes. It's bigger, it's better than anything we could have come up with. Let's pray. God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father Isaiah said he was a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And I and we are no different. Father, help us with Isaiah to see you high and lifted up in all your glory. God, help us to raise our eyes from earth to heaven. Help us to be done with pathetic, self-seeking, little kingdom-building, Lord. Help us to want nothing more than to see you and to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, thank you that your will is being accomplished. Thanks that Jesus' death and resurrection was no accident and that it's the key to your plan for eternal glory and for real redemption. And Father, help us live lives that honor that kind of sacrifice and that kind of cost. In Jesus' name, amen.